Richie Brockerman, Private Eye, won't be seen tonight, so he can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X Files. Welcome to The Gen X Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about Mississippi burning. Oh, baby. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, what a great movie, but not an easy movie. To no. Watch. No, it is not. Uh, but still, God, man, I think we debated for our last Gene Hack Month movie. Mm-hmm. We yeah. thought about yeah. Unforgiven, but we thought that was more of a Clint Eastwood yeah. uh, theme movie because it's one of his best, his yeah. Oscar winner. Yeah. And Mississippi Burning, Mississippi Burning, Mississippi Burning, really kind of neatly fit into the kind of crime yeah. Uh, yeah. theme that we had going with. French Connection, and I know he's not, he's an investigator, but he's not a cop in the conversation, but it's still very, you know, the characters are all complicated. There's a crime happening. Right, and and all of the characters aren't easily likable characters. No, no. I think out of all of his oeuvre, as the elites say, (laughs) um, these are three of his most complex performances, and and that's saying a lot uh, for an actor who... Always brings something extra to the table in anything that he's doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, this character is very nuanced. Very, It's very interesting because there's a lot of backstory that they don't talk about um, that informs this character. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, they do a little bit about him being from Mississippi and why did he leave and all this stuff. But, like, even before they say all that, you can see it, that it's there. And, like, he's – you know he fought to get on this case and that he wanted to go down and do this because he had that inside – into what Mississippi was. Right. And maybe he had some things to atone for. True. Maybe so. Maybe so. Mississippi. And man, the subtle acting of Gene Hackman in this, in the eyes, the way his eyes can flash from good natured to just, I'm going to murder you. Oh my God. When he's in that clan bar and and he's, it's like, Hey guys, I'm just going to be one of you. I'm telling you a story. And then the the flip switches and Mm. it's woo. Michael Rooker. got his (laughs) paid for it. Nuts in a ringer. Literally. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I just want to say something really quick, you know, because, we're not a very political show. We don't like to yeah. talk about politics because it's not what we're about. We're about having fun and celebrating the stuff that we love and the 70s and all sorts of stuff. But I, I, I do yeah. want to mention this, and I was talking to Adam about it. When I first watched this movie in college in, in 88. In 88 when it came out, yeah. I was aghast, man, that of the things coming out of these people's mouths, that, that this was part of American history, that yeah. it, it not that far off from where we were. We were No, it was 20-some years later. Yeah, it's basically like all the stuff was happening in 1998, yeah, you know, yeah, if, yeah. If, if it was happening now, you know, if we were watching the movie now. And back then, I just could not understand uh, how this could be. It's hard to believe that that was happening. Yes. Yeah. Or, or had happened. Had happened. You know. I mean, because neither of us grew up in Mississippi and are the South. No. So it was, we didn't have to deal with that level of that kind of stuff growing up. No, I had relatives. Sure. That, I mean, that, me too. That I yeah. had to deal with that were, yeah. you know, some from Texas. And, you know, it's like, but it's, it's, it's generational. It's, it's, it's part of their culture. Yeah. Yeah. Not excusing it at all. No, no, no. But watching it again in today's climate, I was aghast at how similar a lot of the things that are being said almost verbatim some of these disgusting things and you just supplant uh 
trans people or yeah. uh, globalists or whatever other buzzword for the N-word. And we're definitely seeing a situation where those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it <laughs> Yes, yeah. in the most disgusting way. And that's all I'm going to say. I just yeah. wanted to point out that if you did watch this movie as a younger person, and 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 you know, as we all did, and and you haven't seen it in a while, and you watch it now, I'm curious to see what you think. Yeah. In terms yeah. of what's going on today, uh, the other thing that I will say about the differences of watching it, uh, when I first watched it, I was all Willem Dafoe. I was all Agent <laughs> Alan Ward, baby. Passionate, yeah. like, F you, I'm going to do it my way. He was an idealist, yeah. Because I was an idealist, yeah. you know? But now that I'm more uh, Agent Rupert's <laughs> age, Gene Hackman's age more, in the yeah. film, you know, close to it, I see his side, yeah. you know, yeah. which is you have to nuance this stuff. You can't come yeah. in as a wrecking ball and expect people to do what you want. You have to finesse this yeah. stuff if you want to get what you want. And it... I, I will have to say that this was such a different experience watching this movie yeah. as, you know, Willem Dafoe's age, or younger, much younger than him. I was still a teenager. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, going from then to being a middle-aged old man, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it, your perspective change, changes. And I'm just happy that my perspective has not gotten a lot more conservative <laughs> and it's actually gotten a little more liberal anyway. But I just wanted to point that out before we... Go into it and yeah, and be yeah. a lookout for that if you're going to watch it again because I, I I think it's I think it's worth mentioning and worth paying attention to. Yeah, yeah, it, it is really interesting the two sides of the same coin because they were on the same side the whole time. Just neither of them really realized it because they had very different ways of going about trying to make change. I think Gene Hackman realized it. I think uh, he knew they were on the same side. Yeah, he just was so frustrated with uh, Agent Ward's. Yeah. Uh, just his, his unrelenting, idea. you know, bring in hundreds of guys. Uh, yeah, and, you know, the, it's the like idealism he of war. He, Defoe's character decided that this is the the way the world needs to be, mm-hmm. and so I'm. This is how it has to be. Yeah, and it, and it's not like I'm not going to look at the way people actually are. Right. It's just that they have to be this way, and why can't they be this way? Yes, yeah. I am so righteous and right. You know, yeah. the greatest example of that is when they first pull into town and they go to the diner, and there's the white section, and then there's the the section and he immediately goes and sits in the black section and starts asking questions to this kid and the kid's just like yeah uh-uh no no bye 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 you're you're doing this in front of everybody right everybody's staring at us yeah everybody's staring at me right now and you're asking me to talk to the fbi and even though he takes his food and walks away and says no sir i can't talk to you he's still yeah they still go after him gets you know, tortured. The, the KKK still even, is like, how dare you even look at the you, FBI? How you let that man sit next to you? Yeah, even yeah. though you moved, you didn't move fast enough. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's basically, you know, it's 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 it just shows you how scary it is when you try to disrupt privilege or you try to disrupt yeah, yeah. a hierarchy that has been going on since before the Civil War and after the Civil War, not much changed. Oh, in, no, in no. I mean, that's, and they make that very clear. Arlie Ermey makes that very clear about how this is the way it was, this is the way it will always be, and that's it. And Which is a, it's, that just didn't work with me. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, he understands that the world is changing, uh, and Arlie Ermey's character definitely decides to opt the coward's way out. Oh, yeah. But anyway, let's uh, get into it. Take yourself back to 1988. Yeah. 
June 23rd, NASA scientist James Hansen testifies to the U.S. Senate that human-made global warming has begun, becoming one of the first environmentalists to warn of the problem. And then Congress immediately took action, the world immediately took action, and we solved that problem within 10 years, right? Yep. Wait a minute. Yep. No. Yeah, the 99 degrees it's going to be today says otherwise. Yeah. Let's <laughs> talk about it's Gen X files burning right now. It's like 110 <laughs> degrees. you got to turn off the AC so to record. Warm. We're suffering for this show. Yes. I am dripping in yes. sweat right now. I'm nude. It's like we are in Mississippi. Just a lot of flop sweat. Yes. I'm just a <laughs> naked, sweaty mess. But think about that when you're drinking I'm also doing most of this with my eyes closed. I've got a... Going to pop them out with a spoon. August 1st, a large-scale raid by 88 LAPD officers on two apartment buildings on the corner of 39th Street and Dalton Avenue in South Central Los Angeles takes place. It was an all-out search for drugs and a massive show of force designed to deliver a strong message to the gangs. Police caused massive property damage, including smashed furniture, holes punched in walls, and destruction of family photos, and sprayed graffiti messages such as LAPD rules and rollin' 30s die. Dozens of residents from the apartments and surrounding neighborhood were rounded up. Many were humiliated or beaten, but none were charged with a crime. The raid netted fewer than six ounces of marijuana and less than an ounce of cocaine. Yeah, the LAPD was a corrupt mess for a yes, lot of years. Was. You want to see what that was like? Watch the movie Rampart. Uh, November 2nd, The Morris Worm, the first computer worm distributed via the internet, written by Robert Tappan Morris, is launched from Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the United States. Yeah. Uh, yeah, now everybody and their mother has worms in their computer. Gross. Yeah. December 9th, Mississippi Burning is released nationwide. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just some historical context to the case, because obviously this is based on a true story. Uh, I want to get the facts of the case out first before we start talking about the movie. And also, this is not going to be the easiest show we've done. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a lot of stuff in here that is despicable and disgusting. And yes. Hard to watch. It was hard to watch a lot of that movie. Yeah, um, yeah. I there were definitely scenes that I was like, I wish I w- this wasn't on right now. And I mean, the actors are so good: Brad Dourif, Michael Rooker, Stephen Toblowski, Pruitt Taylor, Vince. These guys are really good at playing their parts, yeah. and yeah. it makes it even more horrifying because it's just so. All of this stuff comes out so nat- not to the actors, but as the characters yeah, comes yeah. out so naturally and horrifying. Right. I mean, it's not an easy watch if you haven't no. seen it, but no. it is definitely worth seeing because it is a really good movie. And even though, much like uh, the day after, yeah, this softens this story quite a bit. Yes, because it's a it's. It's much more horrific than it actually. Yes, yeah, it, it's much more horrific than it is portrayed in this film. It, it, the movie does sanitize quite a bit, uh, which is surprising. Which is surprising because <laughs> it is a, a really hard movie to watch. But it it, it does, like Adam says, we Adam says as yeah. Adams is saying, yeah, uh, it definitely it's really important that we don't forget this stuff. Yes, because when we do, then it's easily creeps back. Yeah, you regress, much like we have. Yeah. So on June 21st, 1964, civil rights workers James Cheney, who was black, and Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner, who were Jewish, were arrested in Philadelphia, Mississippi, by Deputy Sheriff Cecil Price and were taken to Neshoba County Jail. The three men had been working on the Freedom Summer campaign, attempting to organize a voter registry for African Americans. Price charged Cheney with speeding and held the other two men for questioning. He released the three men on bail seven hours later and followed them out of town. This is something I just want to point out. This is all over trying to register 
African Americans yes. to vote. Yes. This isn't a, you know, this is just pointing out to people yeah. their right. Right. That they are as to have Americans to be able to vote. Yes. And people trying to quash that. Yes. After Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner failed to return to Meridian, Mississippi on time, workers for the Congress of Racial Equality, also known as CORE, placed calls to the Neshoba County Jail asking if the police had any information on their whereabouts. Two days later, FBI agent John Proctor and 10 other agents began their investigation in Neshoba County. They received a tip about a burning CORE station wagon seen in the woods off Highway 21, about 20 miles northeast of Philadelphia. The investigation was given the codename MEBURN, short for Mississippi Burning, and top FBI inspectors were sent to help with the case. On August 4th, 1964, the bodies in the, of the three men were found after an informant nicknamed Mr. X in FBI reports passed along a tip to federal authorities. They were discovered underneath an earthen dam on a 253-acre farm located a few miles outside of Philadelphia, Mississippi. All three men had been shot. Andrew and Michael had been shot once through the heart, and James had been shot in the head three times. There was also evidence that Andrew wasn't dead when he was buried as red clay was found in his lungs. Horrifying. Horrifying. Nineteen suspects were indicted by the U.S. Justice Department for violating the workers' civil rights. On October 27, 1967, a federal trial conducted in Meridian resulted in only seven of the defendants, including Price, being convicted with sentences ranging from three to ten years. Nine were acquitted, and the jury deadlocked on three others. Nobody served more than six years. There's a great scene in the movie. Not a great scene, but there's a very telling scene in the movie where three men are brought up on charges of... Was it the, the hanging... I think it was, yeah, I think it was supposed to be the, the lynching of, the, the, the attempted lynching of, right. of the farmer. Of yeah. the farmer and the, and the arson of his house and the blowing up of his house. Killing all his livestock. Yeah, yeah. And, and the judge is like, well, y'all guilty. Y'all pled guilty. And you did a, a horrific crime. But I gotta say, I understand why and where you're coming from. Yeah. We have outside agitators coming in here and provoking you to do this crime. So I'm sentencing you to five years, but we're going to do time served. Yeah. So these guys... They got away with it. Yeah. The only reason... In the movie, the only reason why the guy didn't die is because his son came back and was able to get him before he was completely hung. I mean, technically... All these 19 people, uh, except for one, which we'll talk about later, got away with it. Nobody served more than six years. Well, the problem is, too, is the FBI couldn't charge they, a federal – it wasn't a federal yeah. murder crime. There's no – yeah, yeah. So it had to be conspiracy or racketeering or, you know, it could have been uh, it was the just, RICO Act if it was around that. There was no federal murder charges right. that, and be, they, and, that they could – levy against them because it wasn't it was on mississippi state yeah ground so and because mississippi was still mired in racism and segregation and all of this hateful uh, rhetoric there's no way that they were going to bring up murder charges against these men yeah there was no way that they were going to put the sheriff or the deputy in jail no you know it's it's the good old boys, you know? Well, the, the irony of the judge essentially, essentially using the FBI and the federal government as a scapegoat saying, well, of course he did this. When if they weren't there, if the FBI and the government weren't there, these guys probably would have done this anyway. Right. For some other reason. And then they would just have been made up some other excuse. Again, demonizing the FBI. Yeah. Something that <laughs> never happened again, right? No, no, not at all. <laughs> so... Fast forward from 1967 to 1985, screenwriter Chris Girolamo 
discovered an article that excerpted a chapter uh, from the book Inside Hoover's FBI, which chronicled the FBI's investigation into the murders of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner. While writing a draft script, Geralmo brought it to producer Frederick Zollo, who had worked with him on Miles from Home, released in 1988, starring Richard Gere and Kevin Anderson. Mr. Anderson. Yeah. Now, every time every time I see Anderson. <laughs> too. Uh, Geralmo had no other credits, no feature credits prior to the Richard Gere film, which didn't do terribly well. Yeah, I, I barely remember I it. don't remember Miles from Home at all. Uh, although, in 1995, uh, Geralmo would write and direct the acclaimed made-for-TV movie Citizen X about the Russian serial killer Andrei Chikatilo. Did you ever see that? I don't think I have. Oh, my God, Adam. Stephen Ray. Oh, uh, really? He's the investigator, oh, not the okay. killer. Okay. It is a really great movie. Okay. And it's probably on it HBO out. Max. I'm sure, yeah. I'm I would sure, definitely, yeah. it, especially if you like serial killer. But the, this... Uh, uh, Chickatillo. Chickatillo, man. He was a gnarly piece oh of Oh, my work. God. Murdered so many kids. Oh, he was bad. He ate their genitals. Bad news. Oh, bad my guy. God. Talk about one of the worst serial killers in history. Uh, his screenplay for Season X, based on the book The Killer Department by Robert Colin, earned him an Emmy nomination, a Writers Guild of America Award, and an Edgar Award. Another movie that is not that much of a fun watch. <laughs> but uh, but a really good movie. But it's interesting. I mean, you know, uh, he also co-created with Stephen Bonchko the FS, F- FX Network's military drama series Over There. Uh, he also wrote and performed the title song. Over There. <laughs> no, I Over don't there. I remember seeing, I think, the pilot for Over There, and it was kind of like, oh, okay. Like, it was... Uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of like a cross between... Ma- you know, they tried to yeah. have an even-keeled... Right, right. Uh, ...portrayal of the, the armed forces. Uh, he was a consulting producer on The Bridge, an American police drama on the FX network based on a 2011 police drama series co-produced in Denmark and Sweden. It was good. It was the good. Bridge. Yeah, the, the original bridge. was better, and, yeah. and unfortunately the, the remake didn't get the viewers uh, right. Right. that the other one did, but it's, uh, it was good. It was good. For Mississippi Burning, Frederick Zollo helped Geralmo develop the original draft before they sold it to Orion Pictures. The studio then began its search for a director. Filmmakers Milos Forman and John Schlesinger were among those considered to helm the project. Both great choices. Yeah. Forman had won two Academy Awards for directing, one for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1976 and one for Amadeus in 1985. Amadeus, Amadeus. Schlesinger had won the Academy Award for directing for Midnight Cowboy in 1970 and yeah. had been nominated two more times for the award uh, Darling in 1966 and Sunday Bloody Sunday in 1972. It's funny. I always get Sunday Bloody Sunday confused with Bloody Sunday, which is <laughs> yeah. the Super Bowl movie. The Super Bowl movie. movie. No, this was about the Irish. Irish, yes. Yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, in September 1987, Alan Parker was given a copy of Geralmo's script by Orion's executive vice president and co-founder Mike Medavoy. And he instantly was like, I can do this, but I'm going to cast children in the pots, <laughs> oh. and we're going to use guns, but they're going to shoot pastries at you. It'll be different. It'll be revolutionary. <laughs> Actually, he's like, it'll be revolutionary. Yeah. Uh, that would be a very different movie. He. Uh, this is our second Alan Parker film, yes. first being Bugsy Malone. Bugsy Malone, yeah. Bugsy Malone. The weird kids as adults musical if there was an opposite movie to Mississippi Burning, <laughs> if you were doing an SAT question and it was like, yeah. cats are to dogs, like Mississippi Burning is too, and it would be Bugsy Malone. Malone. Yeah. Uh, he, definitely check it out. We did a whole episode about it. Look it up. It's very good. It is worth seeing because it is unlike any movie you've it ever seen a before. super weird, bizarre movie, but very good. And you get to see a young Scott Bale before he turned into an a-hole, and you get to see a young Jodie Foster. Uh, who's so good. Who's so still good. amazing and awesome. Yes. 
so Parker had just come off making Angel Heart in 1987, starring Mickey Rourke, Lisa Bonet, and Robert De Niro. It was a good movie. It was. It, you know, it's funny. The only thing I remember about Angel Heart is De Niro sitting there cracking open an egg. It's literally the only. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the only part I remember in that movie. It's a, not a great movie, but it's uh, <laughs> it's definitely worth a look. I'm I'm curious to see it now. I haven't seen it since college. Since yeah. college, so I I'm curious to see it again. It's a big Mickey Rourke fan back then, and I think this is kind of the the last of the really good Mickey Rourke stuff before he went a little nut bar. <laughs> Before he started boxing and getting a little nut bar. Yeah. <laughs> Not sticking to the thing he was good at. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you should see this and you should see Pope of Greenwich Village. And yeah. You should yeah. see Diner if you want to see why Mickey uh, Work became amazing. a star because yeah. he was so good in those movies. Such a great actor. Uh, so Parker later wrote uh, that he was fascinated by its fusion of two genres. The noir, Chandralesque detective. Oh, sorry. Fusion of two genres. The noir. Chandralesque detective novel and the supernatural. Uh, Angel Heart was a disappointment at the box office and received mixed reviews at the time, but has since become a cult classic. The, I don't. Unfortunately, there was a, a huge controversy when that film was released because Lisa Bonet starred in it, and Ed's, at the time, Lisa Bonet was most known for being on the Cosby Show. Right. And the Cosby Show was a huge juggernaut of the eighties. Yeah. And she wanted to break out. Of that, and and also a different world, the spinoff show that she yeah, started. Yeah, but she wanted to Which break that, out of that yeah, TV stuff yeah. and do something different. So there was some pretty raw sex scenes in this, and it was, yeah. a, and she did a really great job in the part. But I think that the love scenes and all this stuff and Cosby's reaction, come dirty. Yeah, it was. Yeah, overshadowed the film. And and anytime a a woman is in a TV show that is. Pretty vanilla, mm-hmm. and then they go and do something dramatic and sexy. Same thing happened to Jessica Biel. She was on Seventh Heaven, and then she went and did a movie, and they were like, "Oh my god, f you, prudes!" Yeah, it's like these, these actors want to stretch their wings. They want yeah. to be more than just sitcom stars or yeah. Seventh Heaven or, stars. And not even like being the extra. Like they want to do their thing. They want to be an act. They want to act. Yes, let yeah. them act, people. Yeah. By this point, Parker had been nominated for one Academy Award for directing Midnight Express in 1979, uh, losing to Michael Cimino for Deer Hunter. It's, that's an honorable loss. I have very mixed feelings about Deer Hunter. We've talked about this really? before. Yeah. The, I've only seen it once, and I hated it. Well, how old were you? I was in college. Watch it again. Yeah. I think I, you'll understand it more. It's, to me... The first hour, I wanted to gouge my eyes out. Oh, I loved it. I, I love I that just, movie. I need to see it again. But I think you'll experience. I think you'll appreciate it more now that you've worked in film, and now that you have, you know, it's just it's yeah, it's not an easy film. I, I'm waiting now because I assume at some point we're going to cover it. Oh, definitely. So I, but I'm willing to look at it in different eyes. Yeah. But I just didn't. I didn't get the pacing, and then the payoff was not enough, and I was like, okay, I get it. I get it. I just I think to me it was. You really got to love and know these characters in their home, yeah, in their hometown, yeah. before we saw their lives destroyed. Yeah, no, 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 and by I, war. I, I totally, I get it because it was a, a very different type movie in a different era. I was, I went to college in the late '90s, so like it was all David Fincher and sure. like you know the like bang, 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 bang all the time, and that's not what this movie was. No, no, and I get it. I mean, it's a bit of a polarizing movie because it's it's extremely depressing. I mean, there's yes. not a lot of chuckles yes, in that movie, but it's got one of the greatest casts. It's in it got American great performances, I mean, and, yeah, yeah, and it's just heartbreaking to me. It's Chimino's best movie. I'm looking forward to revisiting it when we finally cover it. 
So when Parker traveled to Tokyo, Japan to act as a juror for the 1987 Tokyo International Film Festival, his colleague Robert F. Colesbury began researching the time period of uh, Mississippi burning and compiled books, newspaper articles, live news footage, and photographs related to the 1964 murders. Colesbury met Parker in 1980 on the musical Fame, where he was the first assistant director. I want to live forever. Colesbury would go on to produce After Hours with Martin Scorsese in 1985. Uh, have you seen that? Uh, no, I have still not seen After Hours. Oh. Again, this is something I planned on watching, but I figure we're going to cover it. We are. But so I, it was one of my favorite Scorsese movies, just because it's so off the wall and different for him. Yeah, yeah. Greatest thing Griffin Dunn's ever done. Chichin Chong, or it? You know, to be honest, I think I may have seen it in college. Now that you're talking about Griffin Dunn and the... But I, but there was another movie that I think I confused with. Anyway. But it's a great take on insomnia and yeah. New York. And yeah. it's just, oh, oh, I love it. Okay. In 1999, Colesbury began his association with HBO as executive producer of The Corner, a six-hour miniseries adaptation of The Corner, A Year in the Life of an Inner City Neighborhood, a nonfiction book by Baltimore Sun reporter David Simon. David Simon. I and love him. former Baltimore police detective Ed Burns. Not Ken Burns, but Ed Burns. No, Ed Burns. And not Ed Burns, the not director Ed Burns. Ed Burns, Burns. The, director, no. the cop. The, sh- the show was nominated for four primetime Emmys in 2000, winning two, including an award for Outstanding Miniseries and one AP Body Award. Have you seen that? I've not seen the original. I've seen The Wire, but yeah, I've yeah. not seen the original. Oh, man, yeah. you should see The Corner. I'm sure it's... A- I- I'll look to see if it's available on Max. In 2000, Colesbury created the HBO series The Wire, written by Simon and Burns. Simon Burns, Colesbury, and George Pelicanos were the brain trust of The Wire. One of the absolute greatest television shows ever created. Yes, yes. Hands down. Ha- no yeah. argument. Yeah. Colesbury had a recurring cameo on the series as homicide detective Ray Cole, which I did not know. Oh, yeah. He was posthumously awarded a Peabody for the show in 2004 after dying from complications during cardiac surgery at the age of 57. Ugh, too young. Way too young. He had so much more to do. Mm, uh, such a talent. Yeah. Upon returning to the United States, Parker met with Colesbury in New York and spent several months reviewing the research. Geralmo described his original draft script as... A big, passionate, violent detective story set against the greatest sea change in American life in the 20th century, the Civil Rights Movement. For legal reasons, the names of the people and certain details related to the FBI's investigation were changed. On presenting Clinton Pell's wife as an informant, Geralmo said... The fact that no one knew who Mr. X the informant was left that as a dramatic possibility for me. In my Hollywood movie version of the story, that's why Mr. X became the wife of one of the conspirators. The abductor of Mayor Tillman was originally written as a mafia hitman who forces a confession by putting a pistol in Tillman's mouth. Eh. Yeah. Geralmo was inspired by Gregory Scarpa, a mob enforcer allegedly recruited by the FBI during their search for Goodman, Cheney, and Schroener. The fact that they leave that ambiguous, like they don't explain the goon squad that he brings in. Oh, I know. With Tobin it's Bell. Just, and Well, we're going to do it your way. Well, I got some guys. The best, the best is when he is... When uh, Hackman's dealing with Brad Dourif in the in the barber shop, and then they cut to the outside, and Defoe just wants to get in there so bad, and the, the giant dude just takes one step over, and he's like, "Okay, <laughs> like, <laughs> he like, okay, fine, <laughs> you're right, we're doing it your way." I said your way. After Parker was hired to direct the film, Geralmo had completed two drafts. Parker met with Geralmo at Orion's offices in Century City, Los Angeles, where they began work on a third draft script. Both the writer and director, however, had repeated disagreements over the focus of the story. To resolve the issue, Orion executives in New York gave Parker one month to make uncredited rewrites before greenlighting the project. Mm, not super cool. A little underhanded. But at the end of the day, I mean, he is directing the movie. Sure. And he obviously is a writer. Yeah. So, you know. But it's still, it's kind of scummy. It's a little nasty yeah. for Geralmo, unfortunately. But I uh, get it, though. I mean, look, it, 
it's a very complicated and difficult story to tell. And figuring out how to make this into a mainstream Hollywood movie, yeah, yeah, you know, it's not an easy task. No. Parker made several changes from Duramo's original draft. He omitted the mafia hitman and created the character Agent Monk, a black FBI specialist who kidnaps Tillman. Oh, that's such a good scene. Which worked so much better. Oh, my God. God, that he's so uh, good. He's so good. He is an amazing actor. Um, Agent Monk? Yeah. Is that Baja Jola? Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure, sure how to say his name. name. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Jola, if yeah, I'm butchering your name, but good so Lord. So good, man. That that, that I was scared. monologue should be used by every actor for yes. every audition they have because it is so good. Oh man, and the fear! Oh, the fear! Oh, Arlie Ermy is oh, so good in that he scene. Is so good. Yeah, uh, the scene in which Frank Bailey brutally beats a news cameraman was based on an actual event, uh, which Parker added in. Parker and Colesbury were inspired by a news outtake found during their research in which a CBS news cameraman was assaulted by a suspect in the 1964 murder case. God, Michael Rooker, man. <sighs> He is one scary MFer. It's amazing because he's such a nice guy. Oh my god! Yeah, and, but he is just so he he plays the scummy so well. He's one of those guys that can play a hole or evil in such a believable, nuanced way. Yeah. He, the thing about him, like Gene Hackman, when Gene Hackman plays a bad guy, there's still a bit of a gleam in his eye, right? Yeah. yeah. There's no gleam. No. Rooker can play just well, look the first thing he did I, yeah you know we'll, we'll talk about it okay. yeah yeah uh, but he's so good uh, um, Parker also wrote a sex scene involving Rupert Anderson and Mrs. Pell uh, the Francis McDormand yep. and Gene Hackman the scene was omitted during filming after Gene Hackman who portrays Anderson suggested to Parker that the relationship between the two characters be more discreet it makes a lot more sense it'd be distracting I 100% agree I think it was a very good choice by Gene Hackman by January 4th, 1988, Parker had written a complete shooting script, which he submitted to Orion executives. Jeromo did not visit the production during principal photography due to the 1988 Writers Guild of America strike. Yeah. The more things change, the, the more, more they, they stay, stay the, the same. same. <laughs> so Parker held casting calls in New York, Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, Orlando, New Orleans, Raleigh, and Nashville. Wow. The filmmakers did not retain the names of actual people. Many of the supporting characters were composites of people related to the murder case. You have to do it that way. Yeah. You, yeah. you Especially can't. because most of them were still alive. Exactly. And you're, the difference is you're not making a documentary. You have to take artistic license you yes. have for storytelling yes. purposes. Yes. And as long as you get the basics right and the horror right yeah. and yeah. you tell what happened at the end yeah. and all such you know you that's okay you yeah, know we're yeah. not it's not uh, a history book no no it's a movie movies that have a tendency to, to stick too close to the truth end up failing cuz they get too bloody it's a comp, this is such a complicated story yes. with so many people involved yeah. i mean it's basically all of Mississippi. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right, Let's be honest, you know, it was like there are a few people. I mean the 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 Frances McDormand Mrs. Pell character is is great because she is not a racist. She is a a a, a person who believes in equality and yeah. believes yeah. in 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 equal rights for African Americans and at the end you know, she's she's been beaten almost to death by her husband. Her house has been ransacked. Yeah. She's sitting in the ruins of her kitchen, and Gene Hackman comes in and he's like, where are you going to go? 
And she says, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, this why? This is my home. Why would I? I, I yeah. I, I, there's a lot of people like me here. And, yeah. and by yeah. leaving, that's not going to help. No, exactly. You know? And exactly. That's, that's bravery. You know, bravery yeah. is sticking it out. I'm not saying that people, I, look, I would flee. <laughs> you know, if I was living in Florida or something right now, I would flee. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but the people that stick around to make a difference, that is true heroism. Yeah. So Gene Hackman obviously was cast as FBI agent Rupert Anderson, an FBI agent and former Mississippi sheriff based on John Proctor. Brian Dennehy was briefly considered for the role before Orion suggested Hackman. He would have been great. He's got that same clean, he been great that too, same yeah. likability, and that same intensity. Uh, by this point, Hackman was a bona fide star, his largest role being that of Lex Luthor in the 1978 Superman and its sequels in 1980 and 1987. Mr. Luthor! <laughs> Between 1985 and 1988, he started nine films, making him the busiest actor alongside Steve Gutenberg. The Goot! Uh, this is the second time that Hackman has had the crown of being the most prolific actor in a three-year period. Because everybody wants to work with him. Uh, in 1985, he released Twice in a Lifetime, starring Hackman as a married steelworker in a midlife crisis who becomes attracted to another woman, played by Anne Margaret, co-starring Ellen Burstyn, Amy Madigan, Ali Sheedy, and Brian Dennehy. Okay. Uh, he also released Target, a mystery thriller co-starring Matt Dillon. Oh, it's a guilty pledge. Oh, really? Yep. I've never seen movie. Target. I it's thought it was based <laughs> off of the store. So. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it's... it's Gene Hackman starts the, sh- the show, <laughs> the, the store Target. He's the general manager of a Target. And he and brings his son in, and they're like, nepotism. Yeah. No, uh, Gene Hackman's wife and Matt Dillon's mother, since he's his son, gets oh, right. abducted, and then oh. they have to go get her. And I think that Dillon finds out that his dad's a CIA guy. Or oh, okay. It's one of those, you know. Those, like, those oh, father-son thriller. Had a past. <laughs> there are so many of those, like, father-son thriller movies yeah, back then. Yeah. It's like, we got to go get mom. <laughs> 1986, he released Power, starring Richard Gere and directed by Sidney Lumet. Hackman plays a smaller supporting role in the movie, but he also released Hoosiers, co-starring Barbara Hershey and Dennis Hopper. Yeah, basketball. Uh, Huge, huge movie. Uh, In 1987, he released No Way Out, a neo-noir political action thriller co-starring Kevin Costner, Will Patton, and Sean Young. It that, I really enjoyed that movie. I think it's an underrated movie, but it is so 1987. Oh, really? Oh, I, baby. I want to say I've seen it. I don't remember it. Again, Gene Hackman deliciously playing the good guy, bad guy nice. role. Okay. Uh, and, and a great, one of the best performances by Kevin Costner ever. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, that same year, he also released Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, with Hackman returning as Lex Luthor. Big mistake. Despite <coughs> sitting out Superman 3. Should have stayed, <coughs> stayed uh, out of 4. There was a lot of money involved. <laughs> I guess. I, I mean, seriously, the reason he came back was because they, like, tripled his salary. Here's a truck of money, right. Mr. Luthor. <laughs> uh, 1988, Hackman was in five movies released that year, including Mississippi Burning. Uh, also released Bat-21 with Danny Glover, with Hackman as a pilot down in North Vietnam. Bat-21, Bat-21. Which we have literally talked about, like, ten times. It's a great movie. It's such an underrated movie. Uh, it didn't do that well in the box office. I remember... I used to manage a video store in college, and I remember picking up that movie and being like, oh, I love Gene Hackman. Yeah. I'm bringing it home, and I love Danny Glover, and I was not disappointed. Nice. Uh, he also released Split Decisions, starring Craig Sheffer and Jeff Fahey, with Hackman as their boxing coach father. Yeah, not great. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he also released Another Woman, written and directed by Woody Allen, co-starring... Jenna Rollins, Mia Farrow, Ian Holm, Blythe Danner, Betty Buckley, John Houseman, Sandy Dennis... Francis Conroy, Philip Bosco, Martha Plimpton, and David Ogden Stouse. Uh, yeah, as Woody Allen does, he gets everybody and their mother to be in a movie. Well, that was before everybody knew. I know, I know. And I, actually, after everybody knew, people yeah, didn't still, really care. Yeah, yeah. Then yeah. either. Uh, and the last movie, the ninth movie that was released in that three-year period, was Full Moon in Blue Water, co-starring Terry Garr. Nice. 
reunited again. Yeah. As the script was being written, Parker frequently discussed the project with Hackman. Hackman said that, It felt right to do something of historical import. It was an extremely intense experience, both the context of the film and the making of it in Mississippi. Gene Hackman decided that he would no longer make violent films after seeing a brief violent clip of his performance in this film taken out of context in his eyes at the 1989 Oscars. Yeah, well, they probably showed the the scene of him beating the F out of Stephen Dorff in the yeah, barbershop. Yeah, yeah, Which they could have picked a different, yeah. you know. There was plenty of scenes exactly. that he was in that he was, was worthy of, of being in a reel. But it was also so germane. Yeah. You know, it wasn't superfluous or gratuitous. Yeah. You know, it was this guy who wanted to get after this dude after he beat his wife to, yes, you know. Yes, yes. Look, uh, he deserved it. I'm saying Brad Dourif did a lot of bad things. <laughs> that uh, that stance of Gene Hackman's prevented him from accepting a job as director of The Silence of the Lambs and almost cost him the sheriff role in Unforgiven in 1982, which he reluctantly accepted after Clint Eastwood convinced him to do it. Little Bill. I'm so glad he did because it's one of my favorite Gene Hackman performances. Uh, that role got him his second Oscar. So, Which he should. Yeah. It's so bizarre to me that he was offered directing Silence of the Lambs when – he didn't direct anything before, I, did he? No, I don't think so. I maybe it was one of those he was interested, and they were like, "Oh, we got the story." Or maybe he had the rights and then just changed his mind. Yeah, I know? don't know. I don't know. Uh, on July seventh, two thousand four, Hackman gave a rare interview to Larry King, where he announced that he had no future film projects lined up and believed his acting career was over. God, that's so depressing. In two thousand eight, while promoting his third historical fiction novel, he confirmed that he had retired from acting. When asked during a GQ interview in 2011 if he would ever come out of retirement to do one more film, he said he might consider it. If I could do it in my own house, maybe, without them disturbing anything, and just one or two people. And okay. nobody stood up, stood, got to the plate and made a movie with him in his house. Look, I'm, I'll do it. I'll go. Right. It'll just be me and him. And, and we'll, we'll just be uh, father and son. Yeah. And we'll just have a It'll be like uh, my dinner with Andre. But it'll be my dinner with be, Gene. That'd be perfect. Oh, it'd be so good. Uh, he did briefly come out of retirement to narrate two documentaries related to the Marine Corps, The Unknown Flag Raiser of Iwo Jima in 2016 and We the Marines in 2017. Nice. He was recently caught on film gassing up his car in March 2023 near his ranch in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the age of 93. Eating burgers, riding his bike. He stopped at Wendy's and he was, he like had gotten some stuff to work on his garden like he's just enjoying his life i like wendy's I, well we used to go to the wendy's in santa fe new mexico and you might run <laughs> into him camp out there and be like can i buy you a frosty and a baconator god he's just so i i yeah i it, it would be so amazing just to say hi i he's such a good actor well you know because it's a small town right that he lives santa, in well outside of santa fe yeah I mean, you know it's a small area he probably his next door neighbor is probably Eight miles away. Sure, but everybody in town knows him. And they sure. probably don't care. That's just no. Gene. That's not Gene Hack. It's just Gene. It's Gene. Gene's coming in to get his oh, baconator. Oh, yeah, he's a nice guy. He just hangs out. Yeah. He wants his baconator. <laughs> he likes his Frosties. You yeah. Know? He uh, does his garden and rides his bike. Yeah. He's still out there doing all this, just trucking along. I hope he lives to over 100. I hope so, too. Uh, Willem Dafoe was cast as FBI agent Alan Ward based on Joseph Sullivan. Good Lord, looking like a baby boy. So, so young. In the, and he was 33 when he did this movie, but they uh, they made him look like he was like 20. Well, it was brilliant. It was the hair, yeah. the glasses, and then a great trick is, is giving somebody an oversized suit. So it looks like they're wearing their yeah, brother's or their just, dad's suit. Just, just slightly too big. Too yeah. big to make them look smaller. Like, yeah, you got to grow into it a little bit there, boy. <laughs> but his change... 
during that movie. Like, yeah. it is so interesting to see an idealist having to deal head on yeah. with the truth and then realizing your idealism is not going to solve this problem. Yeah, there's You're going to have to do some things that is not going to sit right with you, buddy. Yeah. There's like so many times you can stop and go, why are people like this? Yeah. I mean. It's like, dude, yeah, they are. It's, so you have to figure out a way to deal with it. It is really, really hard to put yourself in the shoes of some of these people. Yeah. Especially yeah. Michael Rooker's character, Frank Bailey, who is just an evil, evil son of a bitch, you know? I mean. Oh, yeah. There is no redeeming quality to him. There's no redeeming quality to Prue Taylor Vince. Uh, as Lester Cowens, all these guys are just despicable human beings. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, when they're, even when they're back with their wives, it's just like they're, they're these small little men with small little minds and huge, huge chunks of fear that are ruling their lives that make them these despicable, hate-fueled, right. Violence. But they don't. They don't see it as fear. They see it as of course not. We're doing the thing that we're supposed to be yeah, doing. We're doing the Lord's work. These are not people. Ugh. Yeah, it is. It's just. But that's that's why it's hard for me. I can't look at somebody and think you're not a person. Like that's I, that boggles my mind. Even these people. Even the people that are. You know, I try to figure out why. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. I don't want to just discount and hate somebody you know i understand generations and generations of racism and hate and if you never leave yeah your little white enclave of racism it's really difficult to break out of that but people do yeah you know because I mean, it's I, yeah you, it's basically hate in your heart or no hate in your heart you know I, I there are certainly people in this world like most of these white supremacists that I really hate. Yeah, but not enough for me to try to hang them. No, of course not. So after filming the Last Temptation of Christ, directed by Martin Scorsese, Defoe expressed interest in playing Ward. Oh my God, there was so much controversy <sighs> yeah. around that film. Uh, death threats and oh yeah, uh, just uh, I think Scorsese was excommunicated. Probably. And he was yes. a devout Catholic. Yes, I'm pretty sure he was. And his. The the whole thing about this movie was him pondering Jesus well, as was, a man. He was portraying him as a human being. And what Jesus' yeah. human side would entail. And that's really, that to me is interesting. Yeah. Whether, whether you believe in it or not, it's interesting to explore the, the human side of a god. Right. And I mean, literally being told that you have to go die for everybody yeah. else. But you're just you. And it's like, oh, man? Yeah. <laughs> like, really? Yes. And like, what do you do? Yeah. And he he did a lot of things that men do and humans do. Go. And it's just I, yeah. it's just crazy. Yeah. Well, that's, again, ignoring certain parts of the Bible. Yes. <laughs> Picking and choosing. Yeah. Uh, people are very precious. When it, I mean, I they get are. it. I get yeah. it. You know, yeah. that's their that's their the whole reason to their being, basically. But, yeah. you know, you, you got to leave room for other interpretations. It's true. Defoe wasn't the only one campaigning for the part. Don Johnson pushed as hard as he could to be cast as Ward. Uh, Johnson was in the middle of his Miami Vice run and was trying to parlay that success into other media. Uh, this was around the time that Johnson released his album Heartbeat. Heartbeat! <laughs> yeah. He was trying really hard to not just be the Miami Vice guy. Yeah, which is the one thing that 
propelled him to stardom. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, there's too much baggage. Uh, John Johnson is a great actor. Yeah. I love Don Johnson. I love Miami Vice, one of my yeah. favorite shows ever. But the baggage would have been distracting because we all yeah. would have just seen Sonny Crockett. Yeah. In, yeah. You know, and also, quite frankly, he's too old. Yeah, yeah, actually, to be honest at this point, yes, I agree. Uh, so Parker traveled to Los Angeles where he met with Defoe to discuss the role, and then Defoe was cast shortly thereafter. To prepare for the role, Defoe researched the time period in Neshoba County. He also read Willie Morris's 1983 novel The Courting of Marcus Dupree and looked at 1960s documentary footage detailing how the media covered the murder case. I, Willem Defoe fascinates me. I bet you, because he just seems so in love with acting yes. and making movies yes. and so in love with the process and so excited about it. He's not annoying when no, it comes to no. his, press, his process and all that, yeah, which yeah. a lot of people can be. Perfect casting with him and Hackman playing off each other. Oh, my Perfect God. And casting. they did such – they have such good chemistry. Yeah. So Defoe had just come off an act, uh, supporting actor nomination for his role in Oliver Stone's Platoon. Uh Defoe can most recently be seen in Asteroid City, written and directed by Wes Anderson, and the movie Inside. He's impossible to tell how old he is unless you look it up. Yeah. He's, he, I thought he, I thought he was my age almost, because he <laughs> looks better than I do. Yeah. Uh, which is really sad. But, uh, God, Platoon, man. Yeah. He was so good in that. So great in that movie. It was heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. And that's the poster. Yeah, I know. That's him. Arms stretched to the air. Arms Screaming wide. Getting yeah. shot. Yeah. Uh, for 2023 and beyond, he has seven movies in post-production and two more currently filming. Uh, well, technically not anymore. The SAG after strike still happening as of this recording. Right. Uh, they include two projects with Yorgos Lanthimos, who did The Killing of a Sacred Deer, The Lobster, and The Favorite. Okay, good. Uh, the Beetlejuice sequel he's also going to be in. Mm. And the Robert Eggers penned and directed remake of Nosferatu. Is he going to be playing Nosferatu again? He does not. Oh, nice. He's playing uh, one of the investigators or whatever. The thing about uh, Mississippi Burning is it is so nice to see him play yeah. a person, like a right, like normal a person. Somewhat normal person, yeah. I love seeing his crazy, outrageous, because nobody does that like him. He's yeah. so good. and But just to see how good he is. I mean, yeah. he doesn't need yeah. any of that stuff. Everybody's just no. like, oh, look at that no. crazy face. Let's make yeah. him a crazy guy. But He's making it, the weird choices. But in this movie, he is just impeccable. This is why in the last Spider-Man movie, when they had him come in from the previous franchise and all the multiverse stuff, the scene where he was just like begging with Peter to like, no, man, like I just, I just want us to get along and be normal. Yeah. Like it was so good. Yeah. It was so good. He's just such a good actor. The best. One of the best. Uh, Defoe received an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor in 2001 for Shadow of the Vampire about the making of the original Nosferatu and in 2018 in the same category for The Florida Project. Francis McDormand was cast as Mrs. Pell based on Connor Price. McDormand's first professional acting role was in Derek Walcott's play In a Fine Castle, also known as The Last Carnival, which was funded by the MacArthur Foundation and performed in Trinidad. Ooh. <laughs> of all places. Why not? It's a pretty crazy first <laughs> role. You're going to Trinidad, Francis. In 1984, she made her film debut in Blood Simple, the first film by her husband, Joel Cohen, and brother-in-law, Ethan Cohen. They would get married. They were married earlier that year. Yeah. It's, she's in the vows. He made him. <laughs> she made him say... And I vow to have you star in every movie that me and my brother ever make. She was fantastic. Oh, she's an, um, she is, everybody talks about Meryl Streep and I love Meryl Streep and Meryl yeah. Streep is arguably one of the greatest American actors ever. Yes. 
But I believe Francis McDormand is equally as talented, if not a little bit more. Yeah. And doesn't get the due. She is just so unbelievably talented. Yes. It almost hurts me how talented <laughs> she is. And from and I remember seeing Blood Simple. Yeah. And loving that movie, loving her in it, and that was my the beginning of my uh, torrid love affair with the Coen Brothers yeah. movies. Yeah. And her, and. She is so different in every part she plays. If, if this part, as compared to Dot in Raising Arizona, you wouldn't think it was the same actor Yeah. if you looked at both of these parts. In 1985, McDormand appeared in Sam Raimi's Crime Wave, which Raimi co-wrote with the Coen brothers. They did all sorts of stuff together. Yeah. He was their uh, second unit director on a bunch of projects, and yeah. they helped him do Evil Dead. Right. They were right. A, gr- a group of friends making movies together. <sighs> Good, very talented people. Oh, yeah. In 1987, she appeared as eccentric friend Dot in Raising Arizona, starring Holly Hunter and Nicolas Cage. You gotta get the dip tip. Uh, the movie was also written and directed by the Coen brothers. Uh, God, it's such a good movie. It's my favorite Coen brothers yeah, movie. Yeah, it's so good. It, it was, it's hard. I haven't been able to watch it in probably 20 years because I either stole or bought that from the video store oh, that yeah. I was yeah. working at. And at that time... They didn't sell movies to own. Right. The movies right. were all like 80 or 100 bucks because they were sold yeah. for rental. And we had that movie on in the background all the time. Yeah. Probably yeah. 150 times I've seen that movie. Wow. Wow. And it's still, it is still it's probably so the greatest comedy. It's so good. And my favorite of all the Coen Brothers movies. And that's saying a lot because they've yeah. made a ton made of amazing some movies. Really good movies. When McDormand first moved to New York City to pursue acting, she and Holly Hunter were actually roommates. Hmm. Yeah, it's weird how all these famous people magically cling on, cling on to each other. Gotta get the dip tat high. <laughs> in addition to her early film roles, McDormand played Connie Chapman in the fifth season of the television police drama Hill Street Blues. Oh, yeah. And appeared in a 1986 episode of The Twilight Zone. Uh, Mississippi Burning was her breakout role, garnering her a ton of award nominations. Oh, she's just a baby in that. Oh, yeah. Just a baby. On working with Hackman, McDormand said, Mississippi Burning, I didn't do research. All I did was listen to Hackman. He had an amazing capacity for not giving away any part of himself in read-throughs, but the minute we got on the set, little blinds on his eyes flipped up and everything was available. It was mesmerizing. He's really believable, and it was like a basic acting lesson. Bam. Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman is, I I use the word underrated so much, but in terms of great American actors, people don't give him his due. Yeah. And I think this month has just cemented the fact that I think he is in the top five of the best actors ever. Yeah. McDormand has received three Academy Awards for Best Actress for her performances in Fargo in 1986, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri in 2017, and Nomadland in 2020. Fargo, amazing. Three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. It is an amazing film, and, yeah. and her performance is just She's heartbreaking. Yeah. I did not see Nomadland. I have Land. not seen Nomadland yet. But I'm curious, because it's kind of about van culture. I need to. <laughs> Actually, you should see yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I, I sometimes get... I haven't done it in a while, but I had this period for a time when I got sucked into YouTube videos about van life and Our, conver- RV, converted RVs. Yeah and, and, yeah, and just fascinated by people here's, living. Here's my McKinley tank that I converted into an RV. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's my tiny home. Uh, it was, but I could never do that. But yeah, I, I, I'm curious to see. I'm more curious to see it now that I got sucked into that. Yeah. 
yeah, you know that world, all that world for a little while. Uh, for producing Nomadland, she was also awarded the Academy Award for Best Picture, making her the first person in history to win Academy Awards both as producer and performer for the same film. Interesting. I did not know that. Uh, huh? Yeah. She was also nominated for Best Supporting Actress in 2000 for Almost Famous and for North Country in 2005. Uh, she hasn't won Best Supporting Actress, but has won Best Actress every single time she was nominated. Stay away from her, baby. Yeah. She's going to eat your lunch. You get nominated at the same time as her, you're going to lose. And rightly so. Yeah. Sorry, but she is, the, one of the, again, one of the greatest yeah. actors we ever had. She also won two Emmys for all of Kittredge in 2015 and a Tony in 2011 for her performance in Good People. She just needs a Grammy, and then she's got the EGOT. Get a spoken word something. Come on, yeah. just get her on something. Anything. Anything. Yeah. She's got to be able to. She's got that smoky, I smoke 18 packs of cigarettes a day voice. Get her on doing oh, yeah. a Torch song or oh, something. Oh, yeah, exactly. In total, as of 2023, she's been nominated for 350 awards, winning 170 of them. Good Lord, where does she put them all? She's got a really big mantle. It's just like, <laughs> damn, we got to put in another shed for uh, my awards. McDormand can most recently be seen in Women Talking from 2022, written and directed by Sarah Pauly. Uh, McDormand was a producer on the film, earning an Academy Award nom for Best Picture. Uh, she can also be heard in the TV show Good Omens as the voice of God. Now I want to see it. Another actor that has never, ever given a bad performance. Might no. have been in a couple of no. stinks, but never gave a bad performance. Yes. Brad Dourif was cast as Deputy Sheriff Clinton Pell, based on Sheriff Cecil Price. Chucky! <laughs> yeah. Dourif made his acting debut in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975, starring Jack Nicholson, directed by Milos Forman. He was the one that... Nurse Ratchet just uh, yeah. bullied yeah. and destroyed. Uh, that part actually earned him a Golden Globe Award for Best Actor Debut and a British Academy Award for Supporting Actor, as well as a nomination for Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, losing to George Burns for The Sunshine Boys. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I smoked a cigar and uh, robbed a bank. Mm. Yeah. Hey, where's Gracie? Uh, I've never seen The Sunshine Boys. So Fun movie. Okay. I, I don't pretty know. much think that it was a... You're old. Y yes. You're getting an award because <laughs> you're 95. We should give you something. It's a. It's look. It's, I mean, George Burns is great. I mean, he's uh, he is great. But uh, and and look, it's it's a little deeper than you think. It's not just yeah. old guys putting on right. Groucho glasses and robbing <laughs> a thing. There's a whole right. motivation behind it and everything. And and it's a good movie. But man, Brad Dourif's performance was amazing in Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. Yes. Uh, Durf has made a career from playing off-kilter characters in movies like Eyes of Laura Mars in 1978, starring Faye Dunaway and Tommy Lee Jones, directed Weird. by Irvin Kirshner. Weird movie. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Wise Blood in 1979, directed by John Huston, co-starring Harry Dean Stanton and Ned Beatty. Uh, he was uh, in Ragtime in 1981, directed by Milos Forman, starring James Cagney in his final film role, Mary Man. Steenburgen and Howard Rollins. The film also features early appearances from... Jeff Daniels, Fran Drescher, Samuel L. Jackson, Ethan Phillips, and John Ratzenberger. Eventually we'll cover Ragtime. Oh, yeah, we have to. It, everybody's in it. And that movie was huge at the time. Like, it was one of those event movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that it, Everybody they, had to go see. Yeah, but then it wasn't as good. <laughs> it didn't live up to the hype. Uh, but it was. Uh, it's definitely worth a watch. And Brad Durf was also in David Lynch's Dune in 1984 and Blue Velvet in 1986. Oh, he's great in both. Uh, in addition to Mississippi Burning in 1988, Durf starred in a very different movie that came out in 1988, Child's Play. Yeah, Child's Play! Chucky! Uh, he would reprise the role of Chucky in six sequels and most recently a TV show, his most recent project. You know, in that TV show, there's flashbacks to when he's young. Yeah. And... 
the actor playing the young him is his daughter, his actual real oh, daughter playing really? oh, um, wow. playing him. Wow. You, wow. It's crazy. And she does a great job. Yeah. For the 2019 remake movie, the voice of Chucky was played by Mark Hamill. Okay. <laughs> hey, bats. Yeah, exactly. A ton of other actors played smaller parts in Mississippi Burning. Uh, Arlie Ermey as Mayor Tillman, based on Abner, Ab- Abner Davis Ab Harbor. Man, Arlie Ermey is such a hard ass, and he has made a career. He was made from being a drill sergeant. He was yeah. an actual drill yeah. sergeant, actual gunny drill sergeant, and he played that in so many movies. Right. I worked on, I've mentioned it before, the worst movie ever made, The Terror Within Part 2 for Roger Corman. Arlie Ermey was in that cast. Sweetest man, nicest oh, yeah. guy, a bunch of idiot 19-year-olds just gathered around him. Could you tell us about working with Kubrick? Yeah. What was Kubrick like? Oh, he's great, guys. Now, could you get me my lunch? <laughs> Uh, after his discharge from the Marine Corps, Ermey attended the University of Manila in the F- Philippines using his GI Bill benefits. While there, he was cast in his first film role, playing a Marine drill instructor in Sidney J. Fury's The Boys and Company C in 1978. Oh, yeah. Then, while serving as a technical advisor to director Francis Ford Coppola, he was also cast as a first air cavalry, cat, why I spelled that wrong, cavalry helicopter pilot in one scene in Apocalypse Now in 1979. Yep. Ermy's breakthrough role came in 87, playing Gunnery Sergeant Hartman in Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Private Pile! What is your major male function, Private Pile? So good in that movie. Oh, that scene. Oh, baby. The scene between he and Private Pile in the bathroom when he's got his gun. Yeah. Oh, my God. What are you doing with your firearm? You put that away right now, Private Pile! Oh, God. Vincent D'Onofrio was so amazing. What's so crazy is I think that was like the same time that he did Adventures in Babysitting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because he's just this fat private pilot. One of the greatest performances ever. Yeah, yeah. And such an amazing, one of his first, you know, I don't know if it was debut performance, but it was what got him on the map. But such a different performance than in Adventures Adventures in Babysitting where he played a Thor Oh, Kinda that's right. Wannabe. Yeah, yeah. He was all yeah. buff and long blonde hair. <laughs> Tartain has appeared in more than 40 pictures, most notably as... The Big Bopper and the Buddy Holly Story, The Outsiders, The Hollywood Knights with a K, Fried Green Tomatoes, The Replacements as Offensive Assistant Coach Leo, Pilichowski, The Big Easy, The Grifters, Getting Even with Dad, The Patriot, and an uncredited role in the 1994 comedy Wagon Z starring John Candy and Richard Lewis. Sartain also appeared in a deleted scene from the Steve Martin comedy The Jerk as a Texas oil millionaire who successfully begs for $1,500 in cash to replace the cracked leather seats on his private airplane. You know what this means? I can fly my friends to the Super Bowl like a man and not like some kind of god dang boom. Uh, it's really funny because we talked about this during the Jerk episode, and I didn't realize it was him that played this part because yeah. it, was, it was deleted, right. but I didn't know it was I've him. seen the yeah. on the... On yeah. that 24 and a half anniversary oh, yeah, issue, yeah. whatever that I have. Yeah. They have the deleted scenes, and it nice. is pretty funny. Sartain was also in three of the Ernest P. Worrell movies, along with the TV show Hey Vern, It's Ernest. Hey Vern! Uh, Sartain retired in 2005 at the age of 57. He's now a successful artist and painter. Good for him. He just decided he was done. I kind of like it when these people pivot, and they're just yeah. like, eh, I'm kind of done. I get it, too. It's like, especially, you don't want to, he's a, a journeyman character oh, yeah, actor. Yeah, Great one. 
And you gotta you gotta get tired hustling, man. I'm getting tired, and you get in your fifties, and you're just like, I uh, this is I just don't have the energy anymore. I'm getting some royalty checks. It's cool. I'm gonna do my own thing. I'm gonna paint. I'm gonna relax. I'm gonna do my own thing for a change. I like to believe because it was 2005. It was shortly after Gene Hackman said he was retiring. So Sartain was like, "We can do that." Okay. They went to lunch, and he's like, "I'm (laughs) out of here." Yeah. Well, I'm gonna go paint. That's a good idea. Let's go to Wendy's and have lunch and talk about retiring. (laughs) Stephen Tobolowski was cast as Clayton Townley, based on Samuel Bowers. Tobolowski had just come off a performance in Spaceballs as the captain of the guard before playing a very different role in Mississippi Burning. The white supremacist who co-founded the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan and became its first imperial wizard. He is scary. But not scary in a, like, you know, No, no. But the eyes, man. God, yes. In the eyes, there is so much hate and anger in those eyes. Yeah. And the, the the greatest scene, his greatest acting scene in that movie is at the end yeah. when they're cuffing him and they're bringing him through yeah. his uh, sawmill or whatever it is. And all of his African-American workers are watching yeah. him being left led away in cuffs. And the look on his face, the humiliation yeah. and the hate is yeah. just insane. He deserved – it's so funny too because he's just so known for playing a goofball all yeah. the time. Yeah, and, ju- and so good at playing a I, lovable goofball yeah. that seeing him in this is jarring. It is. It's really weird. Uh, during his clan scenes, some of the extras were actual members of the KKK. What? The irony, as pointed out by Tobolowski, was that he is in fact Jewish. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> – you know, he's up there talking about how the Jews are taking over everything, and he's, you know. Uh, at the age of 72, Tobolowski continues to work in film and TV. Like, he still is coming out with one or two movies every year. Great. He is uh, one of our great supporting he's actors. So good. Always good. Always yeah. good. And he's another guy, talent crush, that anytime I see him in something, yes. I know I'm going to watch it because he's just, he's captivating. And he's so, such an oddball. In so many movies, but he yeah. also is so great at playing straight, regular characters too. Right? You know, he's not right. just oh yeah, yeah. He, Ned Ryerson. He's from, a good actor. Yeah, from uh, Groundhog Day. <laughs> Needle Nose Ned. Yeah, Needle Nose Ned. Uh, Michael Rooker was cast as Frank Bailey, based on Alton Wayne Roberts. Uh, more believable as a murderer, Rooker made his film acting debut as Henry in Henry: Portrait of a Serial Killer in 1986. Have you seen that movie? Yes, it is. The most disturbing serial killer movie I've ever yes. seen because it is so real. Yeah. And it is, there's no glamour, glitz, there's no glorifying, or like in seven, y- y- making everything really stylized. Yeah. Yeah. It is just this just nasty, dirty, and gross. Dirty and, cinema yeah. verite yeah. Uh, uh, movie about one of the most prolific, disgusting serial killers. In 1988, along with Mississippi Burning, Rooker appeared in the John Sayles film Eight Men Out. Uh, obviously a very different part. Yes. Rooker will next be seen in The Western Horizon, co-written, produced, directed, and starring Kevin Costner. Pruitt Taylor Vince is Lester Cohen's, based on Jimmy Snowden. Uh, Vince's first film role was in Jim Jarmusch's Down by Law, but all of his scenes were cut. Down by Law. Have you seen Down by Law? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, Tom Waits, um, uh, the lead singer of the Lounge Lizards, and Roberto Benigni. Zach! Yeah. Jack! Uh, such an amazing film. I love Jim Jarmusch. I think he's a completely underrated filmmaker. One of the greatest. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Peru Taylor Vince was then cast in Angel Heart, directed by Alan Parker, along with other supporting roles in a number of films. Vince described his character in Mississippi Burning as goofy, stupid, and geeky and stated, I never had a prejudiced bone in my body. It gave me a funny feeling to play this guy with a hood and everything. 
But when you're in the midst of it, you just concentrate on getting through it. Yeah. Like Mr. Pruitt. Yeah. And that's me. Through it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I get it, man. No, you have to. I mean. You have to separate. I mean, especially if you're Michael Rooker. At least Pruitt Taylor Vance wasn't as. He, he was a young guy. Yeah. He was, he was obviously just going along with yeah. a lot of it. But there seemed to be like a, yeah, get along, but go he, along kind of dummy guy. He did shoot the guy in the head. Oh, no. Head. I'm not saying that he wasn't evil. But his he had at least a modicum of sympathy. I had a modicum of sympathy for his character. Yeah. I didn't have any sympathy for Michael Rooker's character. Especially with his wife. When they shoot the window out and she's feeding the baby, she just pops out. What the F is going what on? Is, what is going on here? You get down, get the baby in the thing. She's so, she's so upset. She's just mad. Why are they blowing us up? I'm trying to feed the baby. What are you doing? Yeah. Uh, Vince has been in a ton of movies and has made dozens of guest appearances in, in TV shows such as... Deadwood, Alias, The X-Files, Miami Vice, Quantum Leap, Chicago Hope, In the Heat of the Night, CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, Highlander, The Series, The American Remake of Touching Evil, The Walking Dead. Vince received an Emmy Award in 1997 for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series for his role as serial killer Clifford Banks during the second season of the television series Murder One. He was exceptional. He's a great actor. Murder One was a cool show because it was one of the first shows that did standalone seasons. Oh, yeah. Of complete storytelling, like each one would be a case. Pruitt Taylor Vince will be seen on the upcoming Apple TV Plus series, The Lady in the Lake, at some point in the future. Well, that means I'll probably watch it if he's in it. Kevin Dunn was cast as FBI Agent Bird. Uh, Mississippi Burning was Dunn's acting debut. Crazy. I had no idea. Yeah. He's so good. Oh, he's he's such a good actor. Well, he's, and he's in everything. He plays, he, he does equally well in comedy. And in drama, and he just a lot of times plays that fast-talking guy. They say, I gotta go to it. I gotta yeah, get a guy. He's just so good. Uh, he's appeared in a slew of movies and TV shows. Uh, I remember most from Dave in 1983, starring Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver. Oh, yeah. Such a great I part. I love that movie so yeah. much. He was so good. Uh, he can most recently be seen in God's Favorite Idiot on Netflix, A League of Their Own on Amazon Prime, and an episode of Law & Order. Tobin Bell was uh, cast as FBI agent Stokes. Uh, Bill has also made also made his feature film debut in Mississippi Burning. Oh, so good. Oh, Such God. a good part. They picked the right guys to play the badasses yeah, in this, yeah. to play the goon squad or whatever. And like you said, with very little dialogue. Yeah, he, he still is just, woo. Oh, my God. Uh, he was actually first asked by Parker to read for the role of Clinton Pell, oh, the, wow. the role that was ultimately given to Brad Dourif. Interesting. Well, yeah. I think they made the right choice. I agree. I agree. Uh, Bell's most notable motu- Bell's most notable role was as Jigsaw in the Saw franchise, appearing as the character in nine of the ten films, of which Saw Ten is currently in post production. <laughs> I have a very soft spot for the Saw movies because I love the original movie, and every movie after that has been terrible. <laughs> Tobin Bell has four other movies in post production coming out in the near future, and he looks the same. Yeah, he doesn't. Much. He's a he's aged a little bit, yeah. but not thirty plus years. <laughs> Uh, I just, before we move on, I just want to mention a couple of actors. Sure. Uh, uh, Park Overall, who played Connie. She uh, S- Small part. Yeah. Maybe one or two scenes. She, you know her from a bunch of different TV shows and movies and stuff, but she was re- she was the one that's like, why don't you have some FBI guys come talk to yeah. me? She's great. And uh, Frankie Faison. Yes. And, he's uh, so good. Oh yeah. Oh, my God, he's so good. Amazing. And, um, and, then the, and Darius uh, McCrary, yes, the I kid. want to say. Darius McCrary. played Aaron Williams. He... Uh, such a strong performance. Yeah. And he was on Family Matters. Yeah, he was so convincing on Family Matters at being stupid, dumb Eddie 
that I was convinced that he was <laughs> just a dumb guy. <laughs> just but he is not. Nope. He was so good in this movie at such, such a young age. Yeah. Like, oh, so good. Such a commanding like, performance. Yes. Yeah. And, and, so and amazing. And then, uh, of course, Baja Jola as, yeah. as, the, uh, as Agent Monk who yeah. comes in and oh just completely God. steals the show, in my opinion. That's such a good scene. And then he gets on a plane and leaves. <laughs> He's like, I'm out of here. But like a charted plane, too. It's, it's like they flew so him in good. and Because it's like, you got to get him the F out of there. Because, you I know. Just, I love that. He's like, well, how do we know he's not going to talk? Well, they would kill him. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> That's the level we're dealing with. All uh, right. A lot of threatening testicles in this movie. Oh, my God. Oh, man. But uh, that, was a, that was a thing, too. I mean, that was a, a disgusting thing that these racists oh, did. Yeah. Is they would yeah. castrate these young men. Yeah. For no reason. No, because they don't. I, they, huh, anyway, well, it's it's out of fear and jealousy and yeah. inferiority. Yeah. So during the screenwriting process, Parker and Colesberry began scouting locations. They visited eight states based on suggestions made by the location department. The shooting script required that a total of sixty-two locations be used for filming. In December nineteen eighty-seven, Parker and Colesberry traveled to Mississippi to visit the stretch of road where Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner were murdered. Oh. The filmmakers were initially reluctant about filming in Mississippi. They expressed, in, expressed interest in filming in Forsyth County, Georgia, before being persuaded by John Horn, the head of Mississippi's Film Commission. Parker also met with Mississippi Governor Ray Mabus, who voiced his support of the film's production. Uh, they shot for almost 10 weeks on a budget of $15 million. That is great, by the way, that yeah. the Mississippians were like, no, no, no do you it need, here. Yes, you have to tell it here. Because this is our... It, stain. Yeah, it's it is the history that we don't want to forget right. because we need to get past this. Mississippi Burning held its world premiere at the Uptown Theater in Washington D.C. on December second, nineteen eighty eight, with various politicians, ambassadors, and political reporters in attendance. Interesting. United States Senator Ted Kennedy voiced his support of the film, stating, uh, uh, "This movie will educate millions of Americans too young to uh, recall the sad events of that summer." About life was like in this country before the enactment of the uh, era, civil rights era, era. Okay. The movie would go on to earn $34.6 million at the box office. In North America, it was the 33rd highest-grossing film of 1988 and the 17th highest-grossing R-rated film of that year. Pauline Kael, writing for The New Yorker, praised the acting but described the film as being morally repugnant. Well, good. Then she got the point of the yeah, movie. Exactly. It is supposed to be morally. I mean, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. If you're comfortable watching this movie, then you're a racist. <laughs> yeah. In his review for the Chicago Sun-Times, e- Roger Ebert surmised, We knew the outcome of the case when we walked into the theater. What we may have forgotten or never known is exactly what kinds of currents were in the air in 1964. Writing for the Chicago Tribune, Siskel praised Hackman and Defoe's subtle performances, but felt that McDormand was most effective as the film's moral conscience. And he's right. Yeah. On the syndicated television program, Siskel and Ebert at the movies, uh, they gave the film a two thumbs up rating. Yeah, baby. The highest rating you can get back then. That's true. On his year end top 10 films list, Ebert ranked Mississippi Burning the number one movie of 1988. Good. Good yeah. for him. Vincent Canby of the New York Times praised the film's fictionalization of history, writing, The film doesn't pretend to be about the civil rights workers themselves. It's almost as if Mr. Parker and Mr. Geralmo respected the victims, their ideals, and their fate too much to reinvent them through the use of fiction. Yeah. I mean, uh, that makes sense. It's a movie. It's a movie. But it's also, it's a very difficult movie to make because... You need to still make a movie that people yeah. are going to want to watch, and it's still a big Hollywood movie with big Hollywood stars, and, yeah. and it's shot like a big Hollywood movie. But you cannot shy away from the brutality and the language and just the sheer inhumanity 
yeah. of the time that it was taking place in. Well, not everyone agreed with Canby, and the movie was surrounded with controversy. When asked about the film at the 1989 Cannes Film Festival, filmmaker Spike Lee criticized the lack of Central African-American characters, believing the film was among several others that used a white savior narrative to exploit blacks in favor of depicting whites as heroes. People also thought that Parker took too much creative license with the story, straying too far from the truth. Uh, in response to these criticisms, Parker defended the film, stating that it was fiction in the same way that Platoon and Apocalypse Now are fiction of the Vietnam War. But the important thing is the heart of the truth, the spirit. I defend the right to change it in order to reach an audience who knows nothing about the realities and certainly don't watch PBS documentaries. Yeah. You know, I mean, more people were going to see this movie than people were going to watch a documentary about this case. Right. And maybe watching this movie got people interested enough to find a right. documentary. I right. did. I wanted yeah. to learn more about right. this when I watched it because I was so outraged. And I get it, but there is no movie based on reality that is fact. There is no movie no. based no. on reality, Schindler's List, any of them that yeah. don't take artistic license yeah. because it's a film. Right. Regardless, on February 21st, 1989, former Neshoba County Sheriff Lawrence A. Rainey, who had been acquitted in the 1967 federal trial, filed a lawsuit against Orion Pictures claiming defamation and invasion of privacy. The lawsuit filed at a United States District Court in Meridian, Mississippi, asked for $8 million in damages. Rainey, who was the county sheriff at the time of the 1964 murders, alleged that the filmmakers of Mississippi Burning had portrayed him in an unfavorable light with the fictional character of Sheriff Ray Stuckey, played by Gaylord Sartain. He stated, Everybody all over the South knows the one they have playing the sheriff in the movie is referring to me. What they said happened and what they did to me certainly wasn't right and something ought to be done about it. Hey, newsflash, he didn't learn anything. In the 25 years since this happened, Rainey's lawsuit was unsuccessful. Ah, dang, damn it! He dropped the suit after Orion's team of lawyers threatened to prove that the film was based on fact and that Rainey was indeed suspected of the 1964 murders. Huh? Oh, uh, (laughs) never mind. Uh, Never mind. Uh, The film doesn't mention that the Navy men who searched the swamp found the bodies of eight more murder victims, including college student civil rights workers Henry Hezekiah D. and Charles Eddie Moore, who had disappeared one month before Cheney Goodman and Schwerner. Mississippi Burning was nominated for seven Academy Awards, unfortunately winning only one. Uh, It was nominated Best uh, Picture, losing to Rain Man. Yeah. It was nominated for Best Director, losing to Barry Levinson for Rain Man. Yeah. Definitely uh, time for Wapner. Best actor for Gene Hackman, losing to Dustin Hoffman for Rain Man. Yeah, I won the Oscar. Definitely won the Oscar. Best supporting actress for Frances McDormand, losing to Gina Davis for The Accidental Tourist. Okay. Best film editing it was nominated for, losing to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Please give us the Oscar. Best sound, losing to Bird. Which, okay. Uh, it makes sense. I mean, yeah. Uh, and best cinematography, which it won. Okay, good. And one for Best Cinematography. Because everything was burning. <laughs> a lot of burning. It would be nominated for 32 other awards, winning 16. Uh, in 2002, Jerry Mitchell, an investigative reporter for the Clarion Ledger, discovered new evidence regarding the murders. Oh, really? He also located new witnesses and pressured the state of Mississippi to reopen the case. Stevenson High School teacher Barry Bradford and three of his students aided Mitchell in his investigation after the three students chose to research the Mississippi Burning Case for a History Project. Oh, wow. The identity of Mr. X was a closely held secret for 40 years. In the process of reopening the case, Mitchell Bradford and the three students discovered the informant's identity. Who was it? 
Mr. X was revealed to be Maynard King, a highway patrolman who revealed the location of the civil rights workers' bodies to FBI agent Joseph Sullivan. Whoa, was he there? Was he one of the guys that were there? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, it's possible. In 2005, one perpetrator, Edgar Ray Killeen, was charged for his part in the crimes. Killeen, a local minister, had been strongly implicated in the murders by witnesses, but the jury came to a deadlock on their charges, and the federal prosecutor decided not to retry them. Oh, he was probably a billion years old by then. On May 7th, 2000, the jury revealed that in the case of Killeen, they deadlocked after a lone juror stated that she could never convict a preacher. He got away with it because he was a preacher. Yeah. In his 2005 trial, he was convicted of three counts of manslaughter and received a 60-year sentence at the age of 80. Yeah. So, he'll be fine. <laughs> he died in prison on January 11th, 2018. Good, 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 good. He spent 13 years in jail at the age of 80 for a crime that he committed 50 years prior. It's bittersweet. You, I, would, you want them to be captured at the time... But uh, there's also kind of a just dessert to somebody who thinks they got away with it. Yeah. And is getting I, near the end of their life. And it's like, no, you're going to spend. hadn't paid for it. He got his punishment. Uh, and, and unfortunately, a lot of other guys got away with it. History is uncomfortable. Yeah. And if it's not uncomfortable, then it's fake. Yeah. That's just the truth. Yeah. And yeah, this isn't a fun movie like The French Connection. And it's not the conversation, yeah. But it is an important movie to see, and it's a, look. It's a highly entertaining movie. Yeah, you know, it yeah. is a police procedural in a way, and the chemistry and the performances by Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe. Ugh. The the scene so where because you know he's right. Gene Hackman is riding Dafoe the whole time. He's like, "You're a fool." He's like, "You." What yeah. does he say? He's like. Uh, you, you speak, you speak, but you don't listen, and that makes you a fool. Yeah. And when it comes to, because they're always at it, but when it comes to the head, when he grabs him and slaps him, oh my god, there is nothing more humiliating you can do. Slaps him so is, hard is to slap a man. A slapping a man, especially back in the time, you know, was a lot more humiliating than a punch. Yeah. Because it's just and and. Well, and he responds yes. by pulling. We finally his gun. see Willem Dafoe pull, pull his gun, cock the trigger, <laughs> cock the hammer, push it against his face, and he's like, "You don't have the guts to pull the trigger." And he's like, "Ooh, maybe I do." And it's like that's what had to happen, but that's what has to happen with guys like that. Yeah, there's certain people that you have to have a fight with to become friends. Yeah, or you have yeah. to finally come to a head to and 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 come to that absolute. Last step before you can be like, okay. And what happens right after that? Willem Dafoe's like, we're going to do it your way. Yeah. Because I want this so bad. He, he has to understand the, conse- the, 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 the stakes that are there. Yes. Like, he's just like, it's so ideal. It's, well, your idealism runs rampant like that. It's easy to ignore the reality of, like, this means something to these people. Not only that, but the frustration of the fact that the more people you bring in, the more you investigate, the more harm you're doing. Yeah. Because they're blowing up churches. Yeah. They're blowing up houses. They're hanging dude. I mean, when they come in, he started a war. And at the very beginning of the movie, Hackman's like, this is a bad idea bringing in more people. Yeah. It should just be you and I figuring this out, and then we'll yeah. bring them in, you know, once we have nuanced this. Right. And Defoe's like, wow, nope. I'm bringing everybody in, and I'm going to start a war. I'm and he does. And the power of the government. 
And then he realizes what a mistake he made. Yeah. And now at this point, the only way to fight this war is to violence on violence and yeah. to bring in these goons to intimidate these people. Right. You know, right. there's nothing legal about what they did to Arlie Aramie's character. No. You know, there is nothing legal about Gene Hackman going in and squeezing Michael Rooker's nuts until he fell over on his chair. Right. right. You know, it's just, but you got to fight fire with fire. You know, yeah. you, you can't yeah. bring a stick to a gunfight and, and, and think that you're going to win. Right. right. And it's, it wasn't necessarily getting down on their level because getting down on their level is just the lowest level there is. Right. right. But it is fighting on their terms. And the smugness of these racists as they're watching all the National Guard members, uh, futi- you know, the futility yeah, the, of them going through the swamp. Going, right. You're never going to find them, boys. Yeah. You know, and, and knowing that they're going to get away with it. And, and just the in the impotence of the FBI, no matter if there's 100 or 200 or 300 guys, you're not going to stop us from living the Mississippi right, way. Right. You know, so it's like you got to it's just like uh, just like uh, Sean Connery says, you know, they put one of yours in the hospital. You put one of theirs in the morgue. Right. You know, yeah, it's yeah. it's the same kind of old school way of doing things. I don't necessarily agree with all of that, but I think in this situation, you have to take extraordinary measures. You have to have the people there that are willing to get their hands dirty. Right. And 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 it he was Defoe's character was not willing to do that until he absolutely had to. Right. And and realized and saw just what he ha- what had to because be Because he knew one of the great lines and we had to push it back because yeah. the mix was so bad. <laughs> I'm looking at you, showtime. Yeah. Uh was the only way to open the can of worms is from the inside. Yeah. Which is you've got to have to break somebody one of these conspirators right. to, to right. pop off on everybody else. And there's no way that they were going to get that to happen legally. No, no, no. The no. only way they're going to happen is to kidnap. To make him think Army. that his friends are trying to murder him. Or make oh, them oh, think yeah, that a black yeah. dude's going to cut off his nuts. Well, yes, I was thinking of Pruitt Taylor Vince. Yeah, or Pruitt Taylor Vince. Talk. And that was so brilliant, bringing him in the car and driving him through town so everybody could see that he's talking to the FBI. Yeah, yeah. And then, oh, it was so brilliant, then... Getting the goon squad, uh, Tobin Bell and the guys, to throw on masks and and make him and think lynch that him. They were that it was like you talked, and then the FBI comes in. We just saved you, man. Yeah. We just saved your life from your friends who were going to murder you. Yeah, and and they're so and he's just a dummy. He's like, ooh, well, I don't want to die because they're all dummies. You and know, of course they are. And it's just a bunch of dumb, scared, insecure, weak-minded people that just go along to get along. You know, and well, it, it's it's the way it was always done. They can't they can't think outside the box enough to think, well, no, we could maybe get along with people. This is how it was. It's how my mommy did it. It's how my daddy did it. It's how my granddaddy did it. This is how it's going to be. They don't even realize there is an outside of the box. Yeah. To yeah. them, there is just the box. Yeah. Change is very scary to people who sure. aren't ready for change. Sure. But, you know, change is a coming and progress is necessary. Oh, yeah. And and it's not like it's solved. No, you know, no. it's not like the civil well, rights movement solved all this. Not like all of what they did, all what the FBI did, all the underhanded stuff. It didn't really do anything. No, I mean nobody served more than six years. No. Like what it, you know, and they didn't feel any shame for it. You know, no. they didn't. They, you know, they still thought that they were doing the right thing. Every, you know, every single one of them walking out of that courtroom, getting suddenly the text of how much time this. Every single one of them was smug yeah. and just like, yeah, whatever. Especially the sheriff who got <sighs> off scot free. 
Yeah. Who then thought later he could sue Orion Pictures. Learn your history, people. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, we'll be back next week. We've got a stepdad show. Make things a little lighter. <laughs> yes, yes. Talk uh, more about Gene Hackman, stuff we'd up to. And... But above all else, this is an amazing performance by Gene Hackman. Such yes. a layered and nuanced and difficult performance that he makes look effortless. And this is so why good. we love him so much. That mother effer is an amazing artist yeah. who is a master of his craft. And anything that he's ever been in, he's amazing. Whether it's this or loose cannons, you know? Yeah. He he makes everything better. He does. So get yourself some Gene Hackman. Watch some movies. Check this movie out. If you got kids, show this movie to your kids. I mean, not little kids, but high school (laughs) and up, you know? (laughs) Show your babies. Get your babies in there. Well, you're seven now. You got to watch Mississippi Burning. But it is important. No, it is. It is. It is important because it is a time in our history that a lot of people are trying to erase. Right. And, and it, even though it's not the complete version or the 100% true version, it yep. definitely captures the horror, horrific period of yeah. history that it portrays. Yeah, an era that we don't want to go back to. So we're going to keep progressing forward rather than regressing back. And it's up to us to fight the fight. It is. Fight the good fight, people. It is. We'll see you next week. Uh, take your take yourself back, Jesus. Have that time, Lucy Ben. What's wrong with my face, Lucy Benet? Lucy Benot. At that time, Lisa Benet was Miss Bo. Jesus Christ! Wow. That coffee is crazy. Um, <laughs> we now return you to your regularly scheduled program, Abigail. Already in progress. 